time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wow, it's good to be back, good to be back in the studio. <laughs> Things are kind of crazy around here. I don't know which way is up anymore, man. Yeah, that's right. And we're winding down in this particular studio. Uh, Pirate Christian Radio is moving up in the world. We're going to move from our dorm room, well, to, to a better dorm room. Dorm room. <laughs> I guess that's the, the better way to describe it, huh? All right, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith, and my name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. My job on a daily basis is to dish up a daily dose of biblical discernment. And so what we're trying to do is mix things up between the good, the bad, and the ugly. And so today we're not going to focus so much on the ugly and the bad. Talk a little bit more about the good. We've got a good show lined up for you today. We're going to be talking, actually we're going to be talking about a little bit of stuff that's, that's bad and ugly, but it's from news stories. We're not, going to, we're not actually going to review a bad sermon today is probably the way I should say it. We actually have a good sermon that we're going to be reviewing today on death and taxes. <laughs> Great, just what I want to hear about, death and taxes. Those, those two certain things in life. Well, one of them certain, that's for sure. We all know that, uh, which one? Death and taxes. So we're going to, uh, at the uh, at, later in the show today, we're going to be reviewing a good sermon. Not a bad one, a good one. It was preached by uh, Pastor Jeremy Rohde. He is our, uh, he's the other pastor at my church. It was this past Sunday that he preached this sermon, and it's a it's a sermon on death and taxes because that's what the text, the gospel text, dealt with was taxes. And so uh, today we're gonna, we got some news stories we're going to review. They're just a little bit on the crazy side, and we're going to do some listener email today as well. So we're going to be talking about uh, look, looking at listener email. One email in particular has, that uh, we're going to be talking about. Just a little preview of it is uh, talking about um, the beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. Are they law or gospel? Think about it. Is, uh, well, I don't know. The, the The answer might surprise some of you. This is one of those I consider it to be a trick question, you know. So, but the, I'll explain why when we get to the email. Before we do that, though, I want to talk to you guys about an opportunity that you have. See, every one of you, I've, I've given you this great opportunity. You just don't even realize how great of an opportunity this is. And you're all going, oh, man, I feel a sales pitch. <laughs> yes, I would like to recruit some of my listeners. I would like to recruit you to join the Pirate Christian Radio Coffee Crew. And thinking, what? <laughs> What's that? You know, it, um, I, I wish I could say there was coffee in it for you. That's it, We're not going to be giving away coffee. We do not have our own pirate christian coffee brew recipe in fact if you go to starbucks you they you know they they've got the fall line now you know you, the pumpkin spice latte and all that kind of stuff it, it seemed like it came in a little too early because here in southern california it's yeah it's 90 degrees that's a, yeah. when i was in chicago it was really nice it was very nice mild temperatures the leaves were changing and uh it's I mean, when you see these these trees changing, you know, in in, in the Midwest, Northwest, and the and out in the East, I mean, amazing colors. I mean, there was this one tree that was so red; the thing looked like it was on fire. It looked like it was on fire. That the reds were so intense, and it was gorgeous and beautiful. But here in Southern California, things are just a wee bit warm. You know, 
Inland, it's like 90 degrees today. You know, it doesn't feel like fall. What what do they call this? Indian summer? Is that what they call it? Yeah, we've got some Santa Ana winds. And here's the deal. You know, Mrs. Rosebro, I, you know, I know Mrs. Rosebro listens, uh, my wife. Mrs. Rosebro is addicted to chapstick. You know, I, I really need to send her to a Celebrate Recovery program so that she, she can get over this chapstick addiction. I mean, she buys chapstick by the pallet. You know, from Costco, and she's got chapstick sticks strategically laid out throughout the house. So no matter where she is, she can get to it in a in a moment's notice, and she can give herself a swipe. That's what we call them. We call them swipes. Right? Yeah, right. We should do that for Halloween. Trick or treaters come to the door. We can give them some chapstick from my wife's stash. <laughs> now I don't think she'd let us do that. I really don't. But um, so. This is the time of the year we get we get the Santa Ana winds and um, Santa Ana winds. If you're not familiar with it, what happens is during the summertime you get like a high pressure system here in Southern California, and what it does is it brings the uh, the air from the Mojave Desert right into Southern California. I mean, it might as well be like a you know a blowtorch wind from hell, and you know, and it always blows offshore. So we don't. It, what happens when you get the Santa Ana wind conditions? That's you. You know, remember it seems like every couple of years Southern California is on fire. In the fall, you know, you know, all the all the movie stars in the Malibu have their houses burned down a couple times, you know, a decade. Well, yeah, that, those are caused by the Santa Ana winds. People, the Santa Ana winds get whipping up, and then there's these idiots who run around and decide, hey, I got an idea. You know, the wind is blowing really hard. Why don't we light some stuff on fire and see what happens? <laughs> like, ah, you know, what, what? Last year we had like 26 fires. It was really bad. And one of them actually came really close. It came to to San Clemente. It was right. It was on Pendleton. Yeah, school got canceled. It it practically burned right up to the the porch of that San Onofre nuclear power plant. That was all kinds of fun. You know? <laughs> Anyways, when I well, anyway, the, all of this, I'm just telling you these wonderful stories about Southern California. But it, so anyway, it's a little dry right now. It's a kind of mild Santa Ana condition, and you know. Normally, I get my chapstick secondhand from Mrs. Roseboro. You know, she she gives herself a swipe, and then, you know, when I get the kiss out the door, you know, I, I get a little chapstick going on. I need to kiss Mrs. Roseboro a lot more right now because my lips are getting chapped. I just can't bring myself to use that stuff because then I might become addicted like her and have to go to celebrate recovery for chapstick users, you know. <laughs> a funny thing, I did look up chapstick addiction on the Internet, and apparently there's some people who claim there is such a thing. You know, so if there is, then, then my wife, you know, she's she's addicted to this this hard substance called chapstick. <laughs> and I know everyone wants to hear these stories, right? Oh, yeah. Anyway, long story short, we're um, believe it or not, this has to do with the Pirate Christian Radio Coffee Crew. Why I don't know. How do we? How did I bunny trail myself this far? Yeah, Josh came in. It, 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 you know, some of you have emailed me and said. Who are those people you're talking to in the studio? I, I've never formally introduced guys. We got John Baker. He's our he, he's our tech guy, and uh, he he goes to our church and he comes in. He puts a lot of the shows together, sits here, and keeps me company when I'm doing my my stuff. And and then Josh is my son. He's my 19 year old son who's uh, enlisted in the Navy. He's in the uh, the late entry program. He's going to boot camp in January. So yeah, I'm sitting there going, cool. I get rid of one of my kids. <laughs> Yeah, he's going. I get to leave the house. Cool. Yeah, he's ready. He's done. We got to kick him out. The, the bell rang on the oven a while ago. You know, just boot the kid out. <laughs> Ding, you're done. So anyway, coming back to the Pirate Christian Radio Coffee Crew. 
All right. I would like to enlist your guys' help in getting the word out about Pirate Christian Radio. Now, if you have a blog, we actually have a Pirate Christian Radio widget that you can put onto your blog. It's pretty simple. You go to piratechristianradio.com and you click on the promote page. And there's a widget that if you click on get widget, it'll give you the code. And you bloggers out there can add the Pirate Christian Radio widget to your uh, blog site as a way of directing traffic to Pirate Christian Radio. Now, notice that this is the Fighting for the Faith program. So why don't they, why, why am I not encouraging people to add the Fighting for the Faith widget to their blog? Well, here's the way I look at it is, is that this is just one show on Pirate Christian Radio. And um, what I really, really want to do is promote the, the entire Pirate Christian Radio lineup because the one thing I've learned in listening to this radio station is that, man, you hear the gospel all the time. I mean, this, this radio uh, station is dripping with the gospel. And so I, I want to point as many people to Pirate Christian Radio as I can so that they can hear the gospel in many different ways. Now, my program grates on some people. I know that's shocking, you know. And and some other people really enjoy it. And I, I'm okay with that, you know. I'm okay with the fact that, you know, that my radio program grates on some people and upsets them. That's great, okay. Other people enjoy it, no problem. But you know what? We've got a plethora of really good programs here, and they're all really doing a fantastic job of distinguishing between law and gospel, keeping Christ as center. And it, this it, it, it's a place that I can point people to in all good conscience and know that they're going to get good programming that's going to reinforce Christ and him crucified in their life. Or if they've never heard the gospel, I know they're going to hear it. If they just listen for 30 minutes, they'll hear it a couple of times. You know, it's in our sermons that we play here at, at Pirate Christian Radio. It's in the in the radio programs, Issues Etc., Table Talk Radio, uh, The God Whispers, Fighting for the Faith. I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, the, uh, Radical Grace. I mean, we've just got some stellar programming on here. So what I would, you know, and here's the deal. We don't have this outrageously huge advertising budget. We just don't, you know, because we're moving from the dorm room into a, a, a different dorm room. But uh, <laughs> we keep the, we keep our budget stuff down. So here's what I'm going to be doing. In fact, this will be up there on, on at the Pirate Christian Radio website by the end of today. There will actually be a PDF file that you can download off of the promote page for those of you who would like to join up for the Pirate Christian Radio Coffee Crew. And the PDF file basically has two half-page little advertisements on it. So it's on an 8.5 by 11 sheet. You would download the PDF, print it out on a decent printer, and then cut it in half, and you would be responsible for claiming one of your local Starbuckses or maybe coffee, uh, bean and tea leaf or... You know, or Pete's Coffee, or, you know, whatever is, is is available to you, or a coffee house that has one of those community bulletin boards. Now, here in uh, in our neck of the woods, down here in San Juan Capistrano, in San Clemente, in Dana Point, there are Starbuckses everywhere. In fact, you know, uh, we, we've got a pretty tight grouping of Starbuckses. In fact, in San Clemente, there's a Starbucks across the street from a Starbucks, which makes no sense for, <laughs> to me whatsoever. But here's the deal is, is that inside of the Starbucks, they have a little community bulletin board where you can take stuff and you can put it on the bulletin board. And, um, you know, there's, I've seen some pretty schlocky stuff up there, you know, from somebody who's, you know, selling the, that Mona V. Akai Berry 
I I don't I can't even pronounce it, but I mean you you, you got these multi level marketers who are offering their 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 wares there. You got people you know people in the local community advertising upcoming community events like local theater or uh, high school productions and things like that. And so what I've been doing is kind of experimenting. I I have literally made myself the captain of the Pirate Christian Radio Coffee Crew and have gone out to test the waters for all of you. Right yeah yeah I'm a crew of one right now. <laughs> You got to show leadership by getting in the trenches and getting in there with it. Listen, Josh, <laughs> keep this up, and I'm going to make you use chapstick. <laughs> so, what I would like you all to do is consider, um, if you are a Starbucks drinker and you listen to Pirate Christian Radio, download this PDF, print out a few copies of it, cut it in half, and then from time to time. Put it up on the bulletin board in your local Starbucks just to let people know. Now, what I've done this for about a week now, and I've noticed that these things go missing after a few days. So it requires, if you're going to join up with a Pirate Christian Radio coffee crew, this is not just a one-time event. You might have to print this out and keep, you know, you know, put a new one up every other day or so. But the idea is, is to get the word out using a grassroots movement. We call this guerrilla marketing. Or wait a second, we should call it pirate marketing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, and uh, and let people you know in your neck of the woods know about Pirate Christian Radio. Point them to it, you know, especially if you believe in the programming that's that's coming through at Pirate Christian Radio, and uh, and you and you know, it's something that you would like for your friends and neighbor and for your your community and people in your neighborhoods to have an opportunity to know about and to go go and discover and hear about Christ and Him crucified for your sins. Point them to piratechristianradio.com. dot com. So uh, by the end of today. PirateChristianRadio.com, go to the promote page, and there will be a link for the PDF for the Pirate Christian Radio Coffee Crew. And uh, p- take your local coffee house and print out, print this out and put it up on the community bulletin board on an as-needed basis to just continue to get the word out about Pirate Christian Radio. This is more of the analog version of doing that. For I know the bloggers do it using high technology, you know, widgets. You know, and then there's there's a whole bunch of us who are more analog people, you know. <laughs> Yeah, nuts and bolts, guys. This and this gives you the opportunity to, uh, you know, to help spread the word about Pirate Christian Radio. Yeah, and tell you what, what we'll do is uh, everybody who's joined up for the Pirate Christian Radio Coffee Crew. If you've joined the Pirate Christian Radio Coffee Crew, send me an email at talkback at fightingforthefaith dot com to let me know that you've joined up on the Pirate Christian Radio Coffee Crew, and um, send me like a digital photograph. Of you know of of you know your Starbucks where you post it in the, uh, in the in the community. And what we'll do is uh, you know every couple of weeks we will uh, pick somebody randomly from the Pirate Christian Radio Coffee Crew to reward their efforts, and we'll give them some pirate booty. I hate that word. <laughs> pirate Christian Radio promotional paraphernalia, like a coffee mug or you know or a T-shirt or something like that. So, and we'll do that every couple of weeks. We'll reward our pirate Christian radio coffee crew with the pirate booty. <sighs> anyway, well, that took a lot longer than I thought. Roseboro, you're winded. Why don't you just get to the get to the point? Don't you know that brevity is the soul of wit? Well, I wasn't trying to be funny. There, I'm talking to myself. Third person, kind of <laughs> scary. Okay. <laughs> John and yeah. All right, we're going to move on today to the news, and so we're going to play our news music here. Are you guys ready for this? Here it is. Um, this is from the Telegraph. 
in Great Britain. That wonderful Christian newspaper. Well, actually, it's not. Here's the headline. It reads, Beatles songs as likely to explain Christianity as the Bible, says Bishop. (laughs) you got to be kidding me. Uh, yeah, let me read that headline again. Beatles songs as likely to explain Christianity as the Bible, says Bishop. Didn't John Lennon claim that the Beatles were more popular than Jesus Christ? Yeah, I, I, I do remember something in that. Uh, here's the subheading. It says, the Bible has become banal, and rock songs are often more effective in expressing Christianity, a leading bishop has claimed. The... <laughs> A Christian bishop claiming that the Bible is banal. Oh, man. Okay. <clears throat> the right Reverend Nick Baines, bishop of, of uh, Croydon, has urged churches to use hits by bands such as U2 and the Beatles in their services. <sighs> what? No Van Halen? What about the Spice Girls? Uh, they're British, aren't they? Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry. <clears throat> Yeah, some of you just yelled at me. I could I could hear you through the internet all the way over here. All right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. In a book backed by the Archbishop of Canterbury, Doctor Rowan Williams, we've referred to him as a Captain Obvious in the past. This is um, this yeah Captain Obvious. That was the story about him claiming that uh, Christianity, you know, the doctrines of Christianity would offend Muslims. Yeah, this guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Man, so uh, Captain Obvious, the uh, the Doctor Rowan Williams, the Archbishop of Canterbury. Somebody emailed me. They call him Archie. They call him the Archie, the Archie of Canterbury, or maybe just the Archie. I'm sorry. I've not I've not been to Great Britain. I I think I need to remedy that soon. Archie writes. He see he argues that pop music writers can convey deep theological concepts in a way that is more accessible to the younger generation. What did the Apostle Paul say? Preach the word in season and out of season. And this guy's preach you too in the Beatles. All right. The story continues. Hundreds of evangelical churches have already turned the guitar based turned to guitar based songs instead of traditional hymns. But the bishop suggests that clergy still need to be more creative in appealing to the non churchgoers. Okay. This is a form of seeker-sensitivism or thinking. Um, artists highlighted for exploring Christian themes in their music include Eric Clapton, Bob Dylan, John, and John Lennon, who famously claimed that the Beatles were bigger than Jesus. Yes, yeah, all of these guys are. You know, they're they're up there with Paul. You know, the, the new the new four apostles are Paul, Ringo, and never mind. Yeah, the, well, yeah. What is the church for? Well, it's now for the Fab Four. Yeah, it's it's not what the church is for. The church is uh, for the Fab Four. Mm-hmm. Quote: For many people, the language of the Bible has become inaccessible, and yet pop songwriters can make a connection with people because their language is fresh. They are able to open our imagination to a way of thinking about God that we've become deaf to in the church. Maybe we've become deaf to it because it's not the voice of the shepherd. 
<laughs> what did Jesus say? My sheep hear my voice, right? Yeah, John Lennon is not the voice of Jesus. Far from it. I mean, wasn't he like into, he was into that Eastern Hindu, I mean, he was like singing Hare Krishna and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, he was into a lot of things. Christianity not being one of them. Okay, all right. So <clears throat> the quote continues. The Bible is an amazing collection of books that we've allowed to become banal. Shame on us. So we've, we've <laughs> according to this guy's thinking, the Bible is an amazing collection of books that we've allowed to become banal. For many people, it is a closed book, and asking them to read it is a lost cause, which is a tragedy. What? <laughs> You know what? I, I I think my children should use this argument on me when we ask them to eat their vegetables. Dad, Mom, I'm sorry, but you know, vegetables are banal. They're banal to me. You know, and and asking me to eat them is a lost cause. So would you please give me ice cream instead? Losing the world if you pull out of the Bible. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're losing the war. We should pull out of the Bible. Oh man, this is. This is some really ridiculous and backwards thinking. What did Paul say? Preach the word in season and out of season. Apparently, this is not a season for preaching the word, which means you still preach the word. Right? You preach the word, whether it's become banal or not. Yeah. Okay. Bishop Baines said the music is influential in challenging people to think of some of life's big questions. Well, Christianity isn't about having you think about life's big questions, per se. The big question that Christianity answers is, who is Jesus Christ and what was he doing hanging on that cross anyway? Those are really kind of like the big questions of Christianity. As far as the other stuff, you know, the life's big questions, it does answer some of them, but not exactly with the most satisfactory of answers. You know, so, I mean, Christianity isn't really ultimately about answering the big questions. It's about who is Jesus Christ? What did he do for us? What was he hanging on the cross for? Did he rise from the dead? And, you know, what, what you know, that's, it's all about Christ and what he's done. Some of life's an- big questions are answered there and others are not, you know. <sighs> Man, okay. Songs get more into the soul than simply reading an ancient book. Uh, Bishop Baines, they're not Christian writers. Who cares? Uh, He added, I hope that they would be awoken to God and it would lead them to want to read some of the stories of the Bible. Okay. (laughs) Somehow listening to the Beatles is supposed to awaken me to God and inspire me to want to read some of the stories of the Bible. Yeah, so, okay, so here's how it's supposed to work in his way of thinking. In his way of thinking, if you read the Bible, if you listen to the Beatles songs, it will inspire you to read a banal story from the Bible. Okay, that's just, is it is it me or is this crazy talk? I, I really, really think... That this is crazy talk. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to we're going to do some uh, expository Beatles work. Um, let's see. Here we go. Maxwell had a 
All right, there we go. We've got Bang Bang Maxwell's silver hammer came down upon her head and apparently killed her because she's now dead. Would anyone please tell me what the spiritual message here is? Uh, John? No, I, I... All right, what Bible story did that make you want to read? Another, okay, another B song. Hang on a second here. Um, let's try this one. Here we go. All right, Mean Mr. Mustard. All right, uh, what Bible story does that woman make you want to read? Deep spiritual message? You need the Green Bible. Well, you need the Mossy Oak Bible. Yeah, well, I, see, I, I put my Mossy Oak Bible down on the floor of, uh, of the forest, and I can't find it now. All right, so this, nothing, no Bible stories come to mind here. No. All right, um, maybe we can, how about this one? I love this song. So, uh, what Bible story does that want to make you want to read? Uh, what's it, what, were the, what was the deep spiritual meaning of that one? Day Tripper. Come on. We're supposed to be a... Come on. The headline reads, Beatles songs as likely to explain Christianity as the Bible says Bishop. Okay, come on. Tell me about Christianity from Day Tripper. Wait a second. I got one, though. This, this, one's, a, this, this one's a shoo-in. Okay. This one's about the rapture. Here we go. Here comes the sun. Do, 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 do. Here comes the sun. And I say, it's all right. Yeah, I gotta stop there. No, if I stop right there, that's about the rapture. See, I know it says here comes the sun, S U N, but really it's supposed to be S O N. Yeah, really, yeah. See? 
No? <laughs> Come on, guys. Can't you feel the... I mean, don't you feel Christianity just coming to life as I play these Beatles songs for you? No? All right. Well, tell you what. Um, we're... <laughs> I feel like I'm striking out here. Tell you what, we're going to take up our first break. And, uh, you know, if you would like to email me, you can talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. And let me know what Bible stories these uh, songs inspired you to read and what you learned about Christianity from them. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. My name is Rex, and if you study with my eight-week program, you will learn a self-feeder system that I developed over two seasons of preaching in the Octagon. It's called Rex Quando. I need a volunteer to come up here and show that they trust me. I'm here. Okay, you'll do. Come up here. Bow to your pastor. Bow to your pastor! Okay. Now I'm going to give you one chance. One chance, people. Turn around. Turn around. All right. Now fall back and I'll catch you. Ow. That was pretty good. Now, listen, everybody. The reason why he fell was because he didn't have enough faith. Go sit down. Okay. When I fall, I fall in slow motion every time. Now, in addition to what you just saw, if you study with my eight-week program, you're going to learn these things. First off, in Rex Kwando... We use the buddy system. No more reading the Bible solo. You need somebody watching your back at all times. Second off, you're going to learn to discipline your image. You think I got where I am today because I dress like Peter Pan here? Take a look at what I'm wearing, people. Bible pants. Yeah, you have to be pretty righteous to rock these babies. Do you think anybody wants a roundhouse kick to the face while I'm wearing these bad boys? Forget about it. Last off. My students will learn how to walk on water, heal babies, raise the dead, and be extreme. Now, for only one $300 seat offering, you can sign up right now for my eight-week program here at Guts Church. My local Christian bookstore just sells Jesus flock. Where can I find good material? We at NewReformationPress.com are committed to providing a hand-picked selection of books and teaching materials that educate, inform, and entertain while uniquely maintaining a relentless focus on the gospel. We believe that these forgotten doctrines and their scriptural emphases can not only enrich individual Christians and revive the church, but also address the deepest needs of our culture. Discover our growing library of resources by Dr. Rob Rosenblatt of the White Horse Inn radio program, including his powerful address, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church. Available exclusively at NewReformationPress.com or the big picture audio presentation Bible in an Hour by Pastor Wade Butler. Learn the center and scope of redemptive history and scripture in just one hour. And of course, be sure not to miss our selection of t-shirts, gifts, and artwork as well. 
NewReformationPress.com. Finally, Reformation Theology Made Accessible. All right, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith, and I am Chris Rosebro. Middle of the program here, we just got done being spiritually inspired and learning more about Christianity from some select songs from the Beatles. Apparently, uh, Archie, Dr. Rowan Williams, and Bishop Baines out there in the UK think that the Beatles can tell us more about Christianity than the Bible and uh, so far, I'm having a hard time proving that claim. But we had fun. You should have seen us all. We were rocking out here to the Beatles because we're all goobers. <laughs> I love Day Trippers. It's one of my favorite Beatles songs of all time. And if somebody see, you know, emails me and says, you know what? It's really about sacrificing small children to Molech. Man, I hope you don't do that. <laughs> mess up the song for me. Okay. All right. We're going to move on to listener email here. I've got a great email, and I've been sitting on this one for a little bit. And uh, this is uh, from Nathan Bingham. And uh, he's from the website uh, Calvinist. I'll have to put a link up there. He's from the Calvinist website. There's a great kid from the UK. Just, you know, solid stand-up guys. I got this great blog. And um, I, I'll point people to the blog, if, you know, at, at fightingforthefaith.com. And he, this is just a great, great email. He says, uh, listening to your program for a while now, I hear you comment a lot regarding the law as it is coming from the pulpits of men like Rick Warren. I also see in much of the wider community, even in some reform circles, that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, but sanctification is by works. Great point, Nathan. Here's the deal. Um, I want to talk about this. And I was, Before the show started, I was trying to like put this back into my head to make sure I wouldn't forget it because, as everyone knows, I'm getting old. Yeah. So um, and and here's the deal is that you're right. It's it's this idea that you preach the law to nonbelievers to get them to repent of their sins. You give them the gospel to comfort them so they can make a decision to for Jesus, which, by the way, is just fraught with all kinds of error. That's that's decision theology. And we'll have to do a show on that sometime in the future. And then once they're in, you give them the law and you give them lots of them, lots of the law because sanctification is by the law. Sanctification is not by the law, and it's it's really a false category. And what happens then is is that you know the gospel kind of takes a secondary uh, position. It it gets in the back seat, and what's driving is life change. Um, if you want a fuller explanation, listen to my uh, my lecture on three dimensional theology, and it'll help flesh some of this stuff out. But here's the deal: is that I want you to think of it this way. Uh, there's a great quote from uh, from Francis Pieper, who's a, a, a Lutheran theologian. He's uh, written a, our, uh, our dogmatics text. It's called Christian Dogmatics. And he has a great uh, quote, uh, just a sm- simple statement that we can understand, um, that, uh, that good works never precede faith. Good works never precede faith. And this is an important little concept, okay? Because if good works cannot and do not precede faith, then what pastors need to be preaching for is repentance and faith and keeping the focus on the gospel. Because here's the deal. If you preach for good works, but you don't do so without repentance and faith, what you produce are false converts who believe that Christianity is a performance-based religion, that they have to do things in order to be saved. All right? Um, So if you preach a steady diet of the law, what happens is you're undermining the gospel. Okay, but what people have got to get 
through their heads, and we've got to stick to our guns on this as Christians, is that pastors need to preach for repentance and faith, centering it on Christ and the gospel, because by preaching for repentance and faith, good works flow from faith as fruit comes from a tree. Okay? If you preach for good works and and people don't have faith, they'll fool themselves into believing that they're saved. But if you preach for repentance and faith, then what happens is, is that you get the good works with it. It's counterintuitive. It is a completely counterintuitive way of thinking. So, uh, you know, Nathan, you've correctly identified this problem. He says, I personally believe that the entire Christian life from election through to glorification is all of God and at his hands of his mercy and grace. Nathan, you're right. He says, in light of this, and also in light of the Lutheran view of law uh, versus gospel, could you please comment on the Sermon on the Mount, primarily the Beatitudes and how it has been interpreted by commentators historically, and finally, how you think we should interpret them? Oh, this is this is scary stuff. You, you want Rosebro's opinion on how you should interpret it? Mm. <laughs> he asks, was Jesus giving us a new law? Good question. Is Jesus the new Moses? Is pink the new black? <laughs> Apparently that's the case. You know, um, you know that guy who uh, always commented on uh, on how bad people dressed and he had those awards? Yeah, that guy died. Yeah, Mr. Blackwell. Yeah, they had the, the Blackwell's list every year, you know, and where he just, just can take movie stars apart for, like, their fashion faux pas. I don't know why I thought about that. He was a deep influence on me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't tell by the way I'm dressed. Today I'm dressed like Rick Warren. <laughs> okay, all right. He says, um, okay, so was Jesus giving us a new law? Was he describing perfection, which he would attain for us via his active obedience? Now, that's a good question, too. Was he acting as the mediator of the covenant and declaring blessings and cursings to those in his presence as per the covenant of Sinai? therefore ushering in the grander, new, better covenant which he would secure with his blood. Thanks, Chris, for your comments and thoughts. All right, Nathan, I'm going to answer your question as a Lutheran would. And Some of the questions that you ask, actually, uh, if I were to answer them, it kind of puts me into a more Calvinistic framework. And I'll be blunt, I'm not the best expert on Calvinism. Just, I'm not. So... Uh, I consider Calvinists my brothers, and boy, I would love to have Calvinists in the foxhole with me in a good spiritual fight any day. Why? Because we both believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, sola scriptura. I mean, um, I heard uh, a, good, a friend of mine, Bob DeWay, he's got a radio program. I wonder if she, we should bring that on PCR. He's not a Lutheran, but man, he understands the means of grace. Bob DeWay, I, I've interviewed him before. Anyway, he was uh, he was he said, "Yeah, I'm a five point Calvinist, and here are my five points: sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, <laughs> sola scriptura, and sola deo gloria." I'm thinking, well, that's a Calvinist I could agree with. <laughs> I'm actually only a two and a half point Calvinist, but I don't want to get into that now. So, but n- not not according to his points. I mean, if we were to use Bob DeWay's five points, well, then we're both five point Calvinists, if according to the points that, that DeWay gave. But according to Tulip, I'm like a two and a half guy. Long story. Anyway, um, so I'm going to answer this the way a Lutheran would answer it. And here's the deal: our Lutheran doctrine, the one thing you can truly say about it is, is that the center of our theology is Christ and Him crucified. That really is our uh, our material principle: Christ crucified for our sins. Um, 
you know, the the article on justification in the Augsburg Confession technically is at the center, and you know, in the center of that doctrine is Christ crucified for our sins. As a result of it, we have a different we have a different material principle than Calvinists do. I would argue that many Calvinists, their material principle, the center of their theology. And the starting point of the whole thing is the sovereignty of God. Now, I do believe in the sovereignty of God. I just don't think that that's the right center to have a, as a as a theological center. I know that uh, that it's a good one, but it's not the best. Okay, I think we can do better, and I think the Lutherans have it right. Um, otherwise, I wouldn't be one. But I think Lutheranism has it right by putting at the center of its theology Christ crucified for our sins. It's justification by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone. That's the center. And so um, as a result of it, that that's not only the center of our theology, it's also the center of our hermeneutic. It's also the center of our hermeneutical principles and also the center of how we read and interpret Scripture. So when we look at the Sermon on the Mount, the one thing that Lutherans would not say is that Christ is giving us a new law. Okay, that, that's, that's kind of off the table. Jesus didn't come to be the new Moses. At all. No, not at all. Okay, the law, the law does not cancel out the promise which was given to Moses. This is Paul's argument from Galatians. So, you know, if you if you want to talk covenant talk, the right covenant to focus in on is the covenant that uh, Paul lays out in the book of Galatians, the covenant of Abraham, the covenant that that comes through a promise, and that covenant cannot be uh, changed or added to. Once it had been ratified. Now, if, that, if you want to get strange, you can go into the text in Genesis where, you know, the animals are cut in half and, and Abraham is asleep and God passes through. You know, he, God does all of this stuff. I mean, Abraham is, you know, kind of a passive recipient of this covenant. It's definitely a unilateral covenant. So if we're going to look at covenants, the right one to look at is the covenant that God made with Abraham, not the covenant of Sinai. Wrong covenant. So that being the case... The question here on the table that we're going to be looking at is, is the Sermon on the Mount, specifically the Beatitudes, law or gospel? Well, I'm going to answer it by way of analogy. And um, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not going to grant that it's law. Okay? I'm not going to grant that it's law. And there's a reason why. And if you would like to know that reason, I'm going to... Uh, Take, uh, I'm going to look at another passage that has a similar thing going on here. And so rather than going directly to the Beatitudes first, I want to lay a little bit of groundwork because I think it sets the right framework on how do we interpret the Beatitudes through the cross. Okay, So here we go. Um, we're in Matthew chapter 25. This is the, uh, the sheep and the goat uh, judgment. And there's something in here that's really critical. And if you miss it, you can't interpret this passage correctly. And let me explain that. He says, uh, starting at Matthew 25, verse 31, it says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, here comes the Son. Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> Boo, okay. I, I, see, I, I knew there was some Christian themes in a Beatles song. Anyway, he says, and all the angels uh, uh, with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and before him he will gather, gather all the nations and he will separate people one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on the right, but the goats on his left. 
And then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Stop right there for a second. Were the sheep justified by their works? Now, to the uninitiated, and that's kind of the way I would describe it, the pe- person who's not really paying close attention here and understands that everything gets interpreted through the cross, what would happen is, is that they would say, see, these people got into heaven because they fed the hungry, they gave drinks to people, they fed, took care of strangers and clothed the naked, right? So it's their works that save them, isn't it? No, no, no. Why? Why am I saying no and emphatically so? Because the separation took place by what they were. As the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. They were separated in Matthew 25 by what they were, not by what they did. Who is it that can take a goat and turn it into a sheep? And somebody's going, well, uh, somebody who's like into genetic engineering. Let me take you outside and I'm going to beat you up and then send you back in the class with a dunce habit on. No, <laughs> the answer to that one is no, it's not the genetic engineers. The only person who can take a goat and turn them into a sheep is Christ. It's God, right? So they were separated by what they were, not by what they did. Then, based upon what they did, you know, you know, what happens is Christ then opens up the books and says, look at the things you did. And, 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 of co- and the sheep answer, well, of course we did that because that's what we have to do, right? No, actually, read more in the text here. It says, it says, I was naked, you clothed me, I was sick, and you visited me, I was in prison, you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, saying, uh, Lord? When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? <laughs> Notice something here about these sheep. They, Christ is sitting there literally singing their praises for these things that they've done. And they're sitting there going, huh? When did we do these things, Lord? You know, sheep are kind of stupid. Right. They need to be led. Well, here's the deal. How is it possible that sheep can do these incredibly great things and not even be aware of it? Was it? Well, it wasn't them that did it. That's kind of a way of looking at it. But where do these good works come from? Was it because they were trying to pull themselves up by their bootstraps? They were they were doing these things because they feared that they would lose this. No, none of them. They weren't even aware that they're doing these things. Why? Because. They were doing the works that God prepared in advance for them to do. And good works flow from faith like fruit from a fruit tree. I mean, I've had citrus trees before. I've had orange trees, tangerine trees, lemon trees. I had a lime tree once, you know, I have these trees. OK, and I can tell you from experience in watching these trees in my backyard I don't see them sitting there shaking and quivering and straining and fighting to produce 
lemons or, or, or oranges or tangerines or whatever it is that they're supposed to be producing. It just happens automatically. Why? Because lemon trees actually produce lemons by nature because that's what they're made to do. They can't help but make lemons because that's what lemon trees do. Same with orange trees. Any fruit-bearing tree, they just produce fruit. Right? And the more they grow and mature, the more fruit they produce. And you'd sit there and say, good apple tree, you produce uh, good apples. And the, app and the apple tree's sitting there, what are you talking about? I just do what I normally do. When did I do that? You know? Right? And that's the thing about fruit. Think about it. Fruit tree produces fruit. The fruit is not designed to be enjoyed by the tree. The fruit is for your neighbor to enjoy. You do these things automatically because of what you are. And that's the great glory of the gospel. The gospel converts you from a goat into a sheep. The gospel then, you know, Christ gives you faith and gives you work to do. And you do it automatically because the good works flow from that faith. And those good works, just like fruit, are not for you to enjoy. They're for your neighbor to enjoy. And so Christ sit, sits there and says to the sheep, I was naked and you clothed me. I was hungry and you fed me. I was a stranger and you took me in. And the sheep go, when did we do this, Lord? When? Right? Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothed you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, well, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Amazing. Amazing. Okay? They were first separated by what they are and then praised for what they did. And they, did, they, they, didn't, even, they didn't even realize they'd done all these great things. Right? Now, here's the tricky part about being a Christian. Okay? Is that as we grow in our knowledge of the scriptures, in the knowledge of the truth, in our understanding of God's perfect holy law and its demands upon us and how we fall short of it day by day and we live under the cross, what happens for Christians is as they mature in the faith, they become fuller and more aware of their deep and sinful condition before God. And I would even claim that that knowledge grows quicker than their understanding of good works and the fruit that they see in their life. So what happens is, for the Christian, many times the experience is the longer you're in it, the more sinful you feel. Okay? And that has a lot to do with the fact that the Holy Spirit continues to work on you. And as you study and mature and grow in God's word, you become more and more aware of just how wretched and sinful you are. It's humbling. And so what happens is from our experience, it's really difficult for us to see our good works. I'm going to put it to you bluntly. It's really hard for us to see them clearly especially in light of the fact that we become more aware of how sinful we are. And here's the deal. Good fruits are for our neighbor to see. They really are for our neighbor. Our neighbor can see that our faith is alive through the good works that God is producing in us. It's a little more difficult for us. One of the reasons why people try so hard on the, this idea of making sanctification by law-keeping is because then they can feel like they've got some kind of progress that they can look to and say, look, I'm saved because I've made progress. Wrong way of doing it. That's why people fall back into the law all the time is because they, they want that sense of security that comes from, okay, I'm making progress in my life. I must be morally improving. Therefore, I must be saved. You don't 
determine whether or not you're saved through your moral improvement. You need something objective. You need something outside of yourself. One of the reasons why Lutherans point you to your baptism, right? It's something outside of yourself, and it was a work that God did to you. That's the wonderful thing. When you, when you, get the, when you understand that baptism is God's work, when you understand that get, baptism is God's work, then it becomes something that can comfort you in those times when you feel overwhelmed by your sin. And you feel like there's no way that God could forgive me. Not for that. I've got news for you, brothers and sisters. God can forgive you even for that. Christ even died for that. The scriptures say that Christ died for the sins of the whole world. That means even that sin. Christ can, can forgive you. All right, so coming back to our question. Okay, so um, is... Are the Beatitudes law or gospel? I don't think it's either. Okay? I think the Beatitudes are a description of the good works that are produced in us through faith. I think that's the right way to look at it. Because then you're looking at it through the cross. Okay? In much the same way when you see here that you've got these, these sheep who are producing these good works, and they're sitting there going, when do we do that, Lord? Come back again through the Beatitudes then. All right? The Beatitudes begin with, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, is, some, is being poor in spirit something that you have to do? Is that a work that you have to do in order to be saved? No. But what happens is, is that through the preaching of the law and the preaching of the gospel, a couple of things happen. Number one, through the preaching of the law, you are driven to your knees in despair because you see your sin and your wretched condition before a holy and just God. And Scripture is really clear. For instance, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25, it says that God is the one who grants per- repentance. Okay, God give, God grants repentance, and Ephesians two eight and nine. God gives faith. Okay, so you know, so what happens is is that you preach the law, people repent and they're terrorized, and you give them the gospel to comfort them. Right? Who is somebody who's poor in spirit? Somebody who is poor in spirit. I, I like the uh, the the passage from Luke, the cross reference to this in the Gospel of Luke, because it's more along the lines of the spiritual beggar. Blessed is the spiritual beggar. That's a good way of understanding what poor in spirit is. Blessed is the spiritual beggar. That's the person who realizes they have nothing to offer God. They are spiritually bankrupt and completely incapable of saving themselves. They have nothing to offer God as far as the righteousness and their works are concerned. Nothing. They are truly poor in spirit, right? That is not something you can muster from within yourself. That's something that's given to you by God. That's something that literally comes about through the preaching of the law and the gospel, okay? In fact, if you really want to get a good picture of what it looks like to be poor in spirit, then you look at the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, right? Great story. Um, let's see if I can pull this up real quick. All right. All right. Here's a. This is see. This is a great. This is a great parable that shows us what it means to be poor in spirit. Jesus told this parable. This is Luke chapter eighteen, verse uh, starting at verse nine. He says, um, "To some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous." Okay. This is a great this is a great story because here right here in the preface to this parable Jesus told this to people who trusted in themselves. These are people who are the opposite of poor in spirit. These are the people who are opposite of spiritual beggars. 
These are the ones who trust in themselves and feel like they have something to offer God and that God owes them something as a result of what they have to offer him, right? So Jesus tells this, per- this parable to somebody who isn't poor in spirit, but the exact opposite. They think they have something. All right, he says, two men went up into the temple to pray. One is a Pharisee, the other is a tax collector. Scandalous story already because, you know, back in those days, you say, you know, one was a Pharisee, the person will say, okay, Rick Warren. The other's a tax collector. The other's an IRS agent. Right. You see what I'm saying? That's how, you know, already this is a terrible story. Jesus is setting this up in such a scandalous way. And he says, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed, thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners or the unjust or adulterers or even like that tax collector you can just hear him praying like that right i fast twice a week i give tithes of all that i get you can just hear this guy you can hear i wonder if he heard himself patting himself on the back while he was praying this prayer right okay But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. That's poor in spirit. Nothing to offer God, except for his sin. Have mercy on me, Lord, I'm a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified the tax collector went home justified rather than the other for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted who gave the tax collector this poverty of spirit literally god's word did blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven blessed are those who mourn they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. These are descriptions of the very fruit of the Holy Spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Who is it that hungers and thirsts for righteousness? Only those whom God has given faith to. Those who who are so poor in spirit they know they have nothing to offer God, instead cling to the cross, cling to Jesus Christ and the promises of God for forgiveness of sins and mercy. And the fruit of the faith given to them as a gift from God produces this hunger and thirst for righteousness and the promise that someday they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Where did these people learn to be merciful? This is a description of a Christian. This is a description of the righteousness that comes from faith and of the obedience that comes from faith. This is the obedience and good works that flows from faith, from a contrite heart that trusts in, the Christ, in Christ and the cross. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Only God can take a sinner and turn him into a son. See, so the answer to the question, Nathan, is this law or gospel? It's neither. In fact, I would almost, I would almost say it really is gospel. 
But it's only gospel if you understand that what's being described here is not something that flows from within a man's heart, but it's something that flows out of a man's heart who trusts and focuses on Christ. The person who's been given faith, the person who trusts, the person who's penitent. And repentance and faith are gifts from God that come to us through the means of the gospel and through the waters of baptism, I would argue. So is it law and gospel? Well, in a sense, the wrong categories. We're looking at a picture of a Christian. And this is what we Christians are. That's the answer to the question. And I hope that's a satisfying one. All right. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to listen to a good sermon. I know we don't do a lot of good sermons, so but th- today I thought we'd do some good stuff. <laughs> So uh, we're, we're going to take a break. If you would like to email me your comments and feedback on the Beatles songs or the uh, what you thought of um, my explanation regarding long gospel in the Sermon on the Mount, you can do so at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, and we'll be right back. Patrick Kyle, a founding partner of New Reformation Press. Just as the first Reformation rediscovered, reclaimed, and restated timeless truths from the Word of God, the mission of New Reformation Press is to reintroduce these truths to the contemporary church and culture. All of our resources are handpicked to ensure that you have the best available biblical and doctrinal materials at your fingertips to help you grasp the treasures of the Reformation and deepen your own understanding of Christ and His work on your behalf. Browse our website at newreformationpress.com. We offer books, CDs, downloadable MP3s, and our very own line of Reformation-themed clothing. Check out the audio presentation, Bible in an Hour. Absolutely the finest overview of the scriptures that the staff at New Reformation Press has ever heard. Also, Dr. Rod Rosenblatt's presentation, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church. A stunning 200-proof presentation of the gospel for those who have been hurt by the church and discouraged as a result of false teaching. Available exclusively through NewReformationPress.com. Again, that's NewReformationPress.com. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> We're back. It's not a Beatles song, so it has no spiritual meaning whatsoever. It's called Greasy Wheels. That's the name of that bumper music, Greasy Wheels. I wonder if it tells us anything about Christianity. So what what Bible verse does this make you want to read? Nothing? Yeah. Yeah, that Archie guy, he's a he's a nut. Yeah, sometimes you feel like a nut. <laughs> what does that make you want to Yeah, what does that mean? Yeah. Almond Joy's got nuts. Mounds don't. Uh, anyway, so we're, we're going to dive into a sermon entitled Death and Taxes. I mean, what a name for a sermon, right? <laughs> Death and Taxes. And uh, 
And what we'll do first is so that you understand, this is a sermon from a Lutheran church. So the gospel reading actually takes place before the sermon. And um, as you're listening to this, what I want you to be listening for specifically are, you know, what what scripture passage is being used? Is he using the word properly? How is he using the law? How is he lo- using the gospel? What's the problem being addressed here? And what's the solution to the problem? One of the things I got to credit Rody for here, we call him Rody, you know, although he's pastored Rody. He's a young guy, too. 27 years old, and he's in like a Ph.D. program. You know, what's funny is, is that I, I see some of his counterparts out in evangelicalism, and you know these guys are the ones who are in the emergent churches. they got the soul patch thing going on, and they're, they're preaching about how to have better sex. This kid is no nonsense. He is, he is straight down the line, law and gospel. He knows his stuff, and um, I just got, you know, you'll, you'll get a feel for it as we go into the sermon. So what I'm going to do first is I'm going to play for you the, uh, the, the track that uh, you can hear the gospel text itself, and then we'll dive into the sermon. So without any further ado, here's the, uh, the, you know, the, the gospel reading for the day, and, uh, and then we'll dive into the sermon. The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 22nd chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Jesus in his talk. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us, then, what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. All right, so there's the Gospel reading. There's the Gospel reading itself. And uh, this is a tough passage. Where's the Gospel in this Gospel reading? (laughs) This is real tough. Now, I'm going to clue you guys in on a little secret regarding Lutheran hermeneutical principles here. And that is, is that even when you have a passage of Scripture that is all law, you can still appeal to the overarching theme of the entire Scriptures, which is the salvation and rescue by Jesus Christ of all of humanity on his death on the cross. That being the overarching theme of Scripture, even in a passage where you're only getting all law, you can still appeal back to the overarching, uh, it's... It's not just a principle. It's an overarching context for the all of Scripture. All of Scripture is about Christ, right? So, um, Rody, I think, makes use of that uh, that hermeneutical principle here, and you'll see how he does it. He does it very artfully. So, here we go into the sermon itself. Please be seated. Grace be to you and peace from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is said that the only thing certain in this life Life is death and taxes. And the Pharisees have been kind enough to bring both to Jesus at once. On the one hand, if Jesus speaks against the tax, 
He could be sentenced to death for sedition. The Herodians are there to see to that. On the other hand, if Jesus speaks in favor of paying this tax to a pagan emperor who claims himself to be a god, he'll be accused of blasphemy against the one true God, and his life will be forfeit to the hands of the Pharisees or the Roman-hating crowds that follow him. So whether Jesus answers yes to the tax or no to the tax, the irony is that the Lord of the universe is about to be taxed to death. Death over a silly little coin. But it's more than that, isn't it? That coin is a tax coin. And taxes represent a whole system of earthly government, whether Roman or even American. You work for wages and then you pay a portion of those wages to the government in exchange for amenities like roads and schools and roads. (laughs) You pay taxes for internal security, our criminal justice system. And you pay taxes for external security, our diplomats and military. Through taxes, you pay the government to protect and improve your life. A whole system represented by this one little coin. You work so that you can pay, so that you can live, so that you can work, so that you can pay, so that you can live, and so on and so on until you die. That's death and taxes. And Jesus says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. That's the kingdom of the left. That's the way this world works. Whose picture and name are on that coin anyway, Jesus asks. That's who it belongs to. Which is why I personally have been putting my taxes in a shoebox marked Washington for years now. Caesar's system, Washington's system, McCain or Obama's system means that you work for and pay for the protection of your earthly ruler, whether that's a president, a high chancellor, or in your case, maybe a galactic emperor. You'll pay until you die. That's the certainty of death and taxes. And if you don't buy into this system, if you simply choose not to pay your taxes, well, then you'll be fined or imprisoned, or if under a ruler like Caesar, you might even face death. The tax system is a law system. Fail to do, and you are punished. Render unto Caesar, or else. And it's really not so different from the law system that our heavenly ruler establishes on Sinai. Okay, watch this. What he's done right now is he's taken the text itself and basically laid out civil law. Now he's using that then to go as an, into a touchstone into the Mosaic law. And let's see how we all stand up in that particular scheme. Do these commandments and you will live. Fail to do and you will die. Render unto God or else. And who would you fear more? A Caesar who can end just your earthly life or a God who can destroy both your body and soul in hell forever? You see, Jesus gives the Pharisees the law. Render unto God what is God's. And that's where he leaves them, at least for now. Failing to render to God what is due to him carries a penalty so steep it leaves you utterly and eternally bankrupt 
No life, no happiness, no second chance. Interesting. How funny that we were talking about the Beatitudes here. He's at this point describing life of the disobedience and the punishment that comes from it. It's not blessings, it's curse. And so right now, Pastor Rody here is literally unfolding the curse of the law and the curse of of disobedience to the law. And notice he's applying it to all of us. This, these are the threats of the law. And so he's using the law and its threats the way it's supposed to be used in a threatening manner. You see, death is much more than just a natural biological decay. In fact, death is not natural at all. Death is what the cosmic king does to you. It's what he does to me. It's what he does to people whose thoughts, words, and deeds have been seditious and treasonous against him. Because you have not rendered to God the obedience, holiness, and perfection that he demands, you have not rendered to God the things that belong to God. And so you will die. Ouch. There's the law preached to nail everybody to the wall. There's nobody there at that church and even among any of us listening who can say, oh, you're lying, Pastor Rody. I have rendered to God what I'm supposed to render. Oh, no, you haven't. And so he's at this point using the law to convict and expose and show you your sin. This is no sissy five-point application sermon where if you do these things, you'll be a better person. At this point, he's pretty much nailed you to the wall as the, for the sinner that you are. The sinner that I am. All men will, because all men are hypocrites. Just as the Pharisees played hypocrites with Jesus, we're no different. We play hypocrites with God. The Pharisees came with sweet words and hate filled hearts. With feigned deference, they said, Teacher, We know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. As I found out this past week, the confirmation class has a phrase for this that they shared with me. It's called sucking up. (laughs) The Pharisees are sucking up and flattering to hide the truth that lies deep within them. The truth is they want Jesus dead, gone, silenced, so that He could no longer accuse them of their sin, so that He could no longer show them how God counts all their special personal holiness to be absolutely nothing and utterly worthless. We too come before God with sweet words and also with with lives that betray our hatred for His Word. Now notice something here. Watch what He did. A typical misinterpretation of this passage is, see, see, Jesus wants you to pay your taxes, and so if you're not paying your taxes, you're not doing what God wants you to do. All right, all right, maybe that's that may be true. But what he's done here is he's put all of us into the story in a way. And who is he equating us with? The Pharisees. <laughs> Man, come on, Pastor Rody. <laughs> You know, I, my tithes help pay this guy's salary. What's he doing doing that to me? 
He's put me into the camp of the Pharisees and accused me of coming to God with sweet words and hearts fill, my heart filled with hate and murderous thoughts towards Jesus. And you know what? He's right in doing so. How sad is that? With feigned deference, we too say the right things and play the God game well. But in truth, and hidden deep down within each of us, is that rebellious old man that wants God to be quiet, that wants God to be forbidden from telling us how we ought to think or act or live in this world. We despise him because he calls all of our good works and our own personal holiness filthy rags. In fact, we're so steeped in hypocrisy towards God that we'll even hide behind the gospel just so that we can go on living in our sin. Ouch! Here we go again. Man, this this law preaching, the way he's preaching it, he's... It, I said this before, and I'll reiterate it. The perp, When you're preaching the law lawfully, it is a nuclear bomb. Okay, it is nuclear. He's just set this thing off, and everybody in the congregation there that morning has just had their righteousness reduced down to dust. Small little smoldering dust. Thereby mocking Christ's own suffering. You see, we don't just fail on occasion to render unto God what belongs to God, we fail in totality, and the just punishment is death. All right, um, help me out here, Pastor. You've correctly diagnosed my problem. I need help. Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. I'm undone. More certain and more terrifying than Caesar's taxes or the earthly death that he might inflict are God's law and the eternal death that God will inflict. Jesus wants the Pharisees to see this. He wants you and I to see it as well. And that's really where our text ends this morning. In the law, with Pharisees past and present condemned. But of course, that's not where the story ends, is it? Okay, remember I told you that the passage itself, the gospel reading itself, really leaves off in the law. It doesn't get to the gospel. So this is why he's bringing it back to the greater context, the overarching theme of Scripture of Christ's rescue and redemption of humanity. And he can do that because that's the bit greater context of all Scripture. That's how he's doing this. Watch this. It's not where history ends, and it's not where Matthew's text ends. Jesus is going to the cross. And He would have you marvel not at your own righteousness, but rather at His messianic work. And it is not the messianic work that overthrows the kingdoms of this world, but the messianic work that overthrows the law's accusation and eternal death itself. He wants you to see in Himself a stark contrast between your own righteousness and His righteousness. Yours that is as filthy rags and His that is perfect, holy in thought, word, and deed 
perfectly fulfilling the law of God. And He wants you to see in His own innocent sufferings and death that He has brought an end to eternal death. In this Jesus, the law of God is fulfilled and death is no more. But this is only to be revealed in His crucifixion and resurrection. And by these very things, indeed, this text is transformed, this sermon is transformed, and the gospel is to be preached to all nations. All men are indeed hypocrites, but in Christ all men are forgiven. Enemies of the church will point to Christian hypocrisy, hypocrisy and say, See, that disproves your religion. In fact, it does not. It only confirms it. We admit that we are hypocrites, forgiven hypocrites for the sake of Christ. God reveals your hypocrisy much the same as He did to the Pharisees. He reveals the Pharisees' hypocrisy when He tells them, dig in your own pockets for Caesar's coin and show it to me. So he says the same to us when he says, Dig in your own pockets. Show me what thoughts and deeds you have hidden deep within. And so we each stand before our Lord and God, Jesus Christ. We find ourselves not amongst a select and holy few, but shoulder to shoulder with murderous and hypocritical Pharisees and a whole crowd of sinners of every stripe and style. Listen to that. So he's given us the gospel, and now he's circling back to our sin. And what has he done? He's basically said that all of us stand shoulder to shoulder with sinners of all stripes. You think you're better than somebody else? You are not. That's the thing. The law is the great leveler. All of us are beggars. We are beggars. Every one of us. So, we stand shoulder to shoulder with the criminals, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the sinners, because that's what we are. But in the very moment that our Lord Jesus Christ should demand our death, He speaks a different word. I have not come to condemn you, but to save you. I have not come to condemn you for your sin. I have come to bear your sin, to take it upon myself and suffer your punishment so that you might go free. I am your God, but I am also your Savior. So render unto God the things of God. Render them to me. I have come to take your sin So confess it, and with your sin, I take your death. By dying your death, I will indeed be the death of death itself. And all this I do for you on the cross that the world scorns. All this I gladly do for you. So if God demands your righteousness, your faithfulness, your holiness... You simply point to Jesus. And if God demands an accounting of your deeds, then Jesus' words 
have been transformed by His very death and resurrection. Render unto God the things of God. Confess your sins to God. And let Christ take away your sin, take away your guilt, your sorrow, and your death. That, after all, is the great difference between Jesus your Lord and Caesar your Lord. Caesar wants to take your valuable coin away from you. Jesus wants to take your debt and your sin away from you. Caesar will protect and provide for you in exchange for a tax, and there's really no ultimate guarantee that he can do that. But Jesus will protect you and provide for you in exchange for absolutely nothing. In fact, that's the point of grace. And this protection comes at the eternal guarantee of God himself. God has indeed forgiven you for the sake of Christ. He demands no tax. In fact, if you try to add anything of your own good works to this gospel, you just end up ruining it. Sort of like putting an extra brush stroke in a perfect painting or an extra note in a masterpiece concerto. This is the right-hand kingdom, the kingdom of God. And it is a kingdom of God's work and His work alone, which means that we must leave our work, whether good or bad, at the gate on the outside of this kingdom. For inside He gives you full forgiveness and promises you, as we confessed a moment ago in our creed, to raise your body from the dead. So just about the time that you thought you could count on the certainty of death and taxes, well, death no longer looks so certain, does it? At the very time that the Pharisees hate Jesus the most, Jesus stands, lovingly drawing their hypocrisy out of them so that he might bear it to the cross. He even loves his enemies with perfect love. And at the very moment that you are at your wit's end, when you've had it with life and love and God and with forgiveness and even with all his gifts, Jesus is there to draw your sin out of you and your hypocrisy out of you into the vortex of His death. For His death stands as a sacrifice made once and for all. A sacrifice made for each of you. If you show contempt for Caesar, well, he'd have your head. But a greater than Caesar is here. He is a merciful King of kings, and His kingdom is just plain better. You purchase Caesar's services with your tax, But here in God's kingdom, He has purchased you with the precious blood of His Christ. The tax coin belongs to Caesar. Upon it, He has stamped His image and His name. But you belong to God. Upon you, He has stamped the image of His Son and His Son's holy name. Upon your forehead and upon your heart, God has written His name and claimed you as His own minting you through holy baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so that upon your thoughts, your words, and your deeds, upon your very life, body, and soul, He has stamped the image of His Son, His righteousness, His holiness. It is no longer your righteousness that God demands. All that should be rendered to God according to the law's demand Jesus has rendered. 
And God now looks upon you and sees the image of His Son imprinted upon you. Therefore, Jesus said, Render unto Caesar the things of Caesar, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled. It is said that the only thing certain in life is death and taxes. Pay your taxes for now, but death is no more. Amen. I, you just can't improve on that. The law to convict you of your sin and the sweet gospel. All the things that Christ has done. This sermon, yeah, we were there. He preached about us for a little bit. To make it really clear, you're standing before God based on your righteousness, if you could even call it that. And then he placarded and proclaimed the perfect righteousness of Christ and how Christ has done it all for you and the free gift of the gospel and the forgiveness of sins offered to us freely on account of what Christ did on the cross. That's what I call Christian preaching. And I can't get enough of it. Just can't get enough of it. It's a pure delight Sunday after Sunday to be able to attend a church congregation where the pastors understand the law and the gospel, what the law is for, and preach Christ Sunday after Sunday. Man, it doesn't get any better than that. Anyway, so we're going to end our show there today. I hope you uh, you enjoyed it and learned stuff from it. And uh, if you would like to email me and uh, give your feedback for any of the, anything that uh, we've talked about today, in, uh, in in fighting for the faith. Also, just want to let you know, we're going to be putting that sermon into the Preaching Christ show tomorrow at 10 a.m. Pacific. So that way you can hear it without Roseboro commenting on it. <laughs> yeah, so tomorrow at uh, on Pirate Christian Radio at 10, 10 a.m. Pacific, you can hear that sermon uh, in Preaching uh, Christ. So anyway, uh, if you would like to email me, you can at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Well, until tomorrow, until next time, may God bless you. 